Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 11th of February. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week we explore the search for post-conflict justice and examine what the conviction of Anwar Razlan means for the victims of Syrian war crimes. For victims, I think it, it, it is the, the start of hope. It's, it's, it's the shining light at the end of the tunnel. I really salute their bravery. I, I really salute their continuous work because it's it's not easy to keep, continue to just hold on, on to this. It could be very, very hard. And then with the imminent arrival of Valentine's Day, producer Rosie McCabe delves into the world of the poet Rumi to unearth his lessons on love. He writes about love because it is the most universal thing. In fact, for him... Love is the divine glue that holds the universe together. It is love that is creative. But first, a quick look at the biggest headlines from the past week. I hope, personally, I would have hoped uh, to be able to engage as in, in the same way with the authorities of Israel, but clearly they have not um, been um, available and they have refused to have a substantive conversation around the report. Uh, this being said, we will continue our advocacy and our work so that the system and the crimes of apartheid committed by the Israeli authorities are addressed and dismantled. Amnesty International has slammed Israel's institutionalised and systematic abuse of Palestinians, saying that it amounts to the crime of apartheid. In a report published on February 1st, the organisation concluded that Israel treats Palestinians as an inferior non-Jewish racial group by enforcing a regime of oppression and domination. The 280-page document entitled Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinians outlined how the Israeli state segregates and controls Palestinians in order to maintain Jewish dominance. It said that Israel used unlawful killings, confiscation of land and property, forced transfer, restrictions on movement and denial of nationality and citizenship in order to achieve this. Assailants struck Libyan Prime Minister Abdul Hamid al-Dabeba's car with bullets earlier on February 10th, but he escaped unharmed, a government source close to him said, amid intense factional wrangling over the control of the government. The source said the incident happened as Debeba was returning home, describing it as a clear assassination attempt, adding that the attackers fled and the incident has been referred for investigation. Footage carried on Al Jazeera television showed what was said to be Debeba's vehicle, which had what appeared to be bullet marks on the windscreen and two other marks on the headlights and the chassis. If confirmed, an attempt to assassinate Debeba could aggravate the crisis over control of Libya, after the Prime Minister said he will ignore a vote scheduled by the Eastern-based Parliament to replace him. Okay, okay, okay. 
More than 200 judges and lawyers in black robes protested on February 10th outside the main court in the Tunisian capital after President Qais Sayed vowed to scrap a key judicial watchdog. Judges have been on strike since Wednesday in the North African country in protest at Said's weekend move to dissolve the Supreme Judicial Council, or CSM, after a July power grab. At the rally in central Tunis on Thursday, police looked on as protesters chanted, Restore the CSM, and the people want an independent judiciary. Some held signs calling Sayed's move a violation of rights and freedoms and saying there is no democracy without an independent judiciary. A Uyghur athlete representing China at the Winter Games in Beijing has quietly slipped away from the spotlight after finishing 43rd in her cross-country skiathon debut on Saturday. 20-year-old Denager Yilamu Zhang, the competition's only Uyghur athlete, had been put under the spotlight by Chinese authorities who stand accused of human rights abuses against the Muslim minority group which Yilamu Zhang comes from. Yilamu Zhang lit the Olympic flame at the event's opening ceremony, sparking accusations that China was politicising the event. Beijing has faced widespread criticism over its actions in Xinjiang, where up to one million Uyghur and other Muslim minorities have been detained. And finally, Moroccans on February 7th bid a final farewell to Rayan Auram, a five-year-old boy who died after falling down a 30-metre-deep well on Tuesday in a north Moroccan village. The Arab world was gripped by a week of desperate attempts to save the boy who was dug out of the shaft on Saturday but was announced dead shortly after. Hundreds of locals and Moroccans came from distant cities and towns to pay tribute to little Rayan at the mountainous village of Igram and join the Islamic funeral prayer for his soul. Since 2011, the conflict in Syria has wrought untold horrors. It has laid waste to cities, towns and villages, torn families apart, destroyed livelihoods and lives alike. It's a conflict that has been marked not only by the brutality on the battlefield, with the indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas, the use of chemical weapons and the targeting of health facilities, but also in the secret prisons of the Assad regime. Tens of thousands have been arrested, tortured, assaulted, raped, brutalised and murdered by a regime that will stop at nothing to keep the country clenched in a bloody fist. While resistance continues in parts of the country, Syria's President Bashar al-Assad, with support from his Russian and Iranian partners, have retaken much of the country. In the strictest sense, the war may not be over, but any major shifts in the balance of power are, in truth, highly unlikely. Since 2011, a debt has been accrued, a debt of blood and suffering, which must now be paid for with justice. What are the mechanisms currently being used to secure justice? What could be used in the future? 
and what are the barriers that are blocking victims of the Syrian conflict from securing justice? I think the main challenge would be the lack of an ICC investigation or any other international court, ad hoc tribunal or what have you. That's been a real problem and something which goes back many years when Russia and China blocked referral of the situation in Syria to the ICC back in 2014. This is Christian Benedict, a crisis and tactical campaign manager for Amnesty International. So that's caused a real difficulty for people interested in uh, justice and accountability in Syria, that there isn't this overarching international investigation which has the resources and the capacity and the mandates to track down and to arrest and to basically to hold to account all those from all parties to the conflict in Syria to account. That, I would say, would be the number one challenge. The International Criminal Court, or ICC, was established as a permanent body in 2002 with the intention of trying individuals accused of heinous atrocities, such as war crimes and crimes against humanity. Countries that are signatories to the Rome Statute, the court's foundational treaty, can be subject to the ICC. Syria is not a signatory. This means that for Syria to be taken to the ICC, a resolution must be passed by the UN Security Council, which permanent members, Russia and China, have consistently blocked. With access to the ICC blocked, victims of Syrian war crimes have had to use alternative paths. Currently, that means implementing a fairly controversial principle known as universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction allows for foreign citizens to be tried in a foreign court for crimes committed in a foreign jurisdiction. It's really actually the only option that those interested in justice for Syrians have at the moment. There's no ICC investigation. There's, of course, no chance of genuine, credible justice inside Syria. So it's really only universal jurisdiction. And we have to make of that what we can in terms of extracting the benefits. And, you know, given enough time, given enough commitment, given enough resources, it can actually lead to some good results. This year, the world saw these good results. On January 13th, Syrian national Anwar Razlan was found guilty by a German court in Koblenz of 4,000 counts of torture and 58 counts of murder, rape and sexual coercion. He committed these crimes during his time as head of the intelligence department of the notorious Branch 251 in Damascus. I was in the in the underground and I I get out and it was a sunny morning in London. I got the news when I got out of the underground and I received the message. Finally, some good luck. Finally, some good news from around Syria. This is Naya Skaff, Syrian journalist and co-host of the podcast Branch 251, which documented and reported on the trial of Anwar Razlan. It was like something to just give give you some hope that oh, there is a certain hope. There is always this kind of soothing light at the end of the tunnel. It made me smile. And, and to see the reaction of people, families from for freedom and uh, people who really lost someone and to see their reactions, it gives you strength to continue, maybe. You just like to uh, not to uh, just give up on, on that. The verdict against Anwar Raslan was a historic landmark in the search for justice and its impact should not be underestimated but neither should it be underestimated the vast amount of effort and resources 
that are required to secure convictions. It's extremely time-consuming, extremely limited in scope and very resource-intensive for the results you get. But it's all we have at the moment, so we have to make of it what we can and keep on pushing for more resources. At the outset of the conflict in Syria, many Western states came under intense criticism for not stepping in and providing the resources needed to put an end to the Assad regime. These same Western states are coming under fire again for not providing adequate resources to secure justice for Syrian victims. I would say on any objective assessment, every single state is failing. Every single state, including Germany, and Germany are at the head of the game. You know, that's the problem. It, you know, it goes back to the limitations and the complexity of justice, international justice, and universal jurisdiction in particular, which is com- complex and controversial, only enough is being done at a very limited level by states to really genuinely invest in the justice track, whether it's their own war crimes units or, or whether it's investing in international, regional or Syrian-led justice initiatives, whether it's evidence collection, storage, analysis, helping file cases, supporting Syrian human rights defenders to do this work or Syrian survivors to deal with the trauma and care needed uh, to work on the justice track. With the vast litany of crimes that have been committed in Syria and the limited paths for justice, it can be easy to get disheartened. But when faced with such an uphill struggle, those in the fight for justice are taking every opportunity to build on the positives, such as the conviction of Anwar Razlan. For victims, I think it, it, it is the, the start of hope. It's, it's, it's the shining light at the end of the tunnel. I really salute their bravery. I, I really salute their continuous work because it's it's not easy to keep, continue to just hold on, on to this. It could be very, very hard to also to go on with their lives. It could be, it could mean something good, like just raising the hope level among Syrians, among the family. You know, I wouldn't underestimate what a motivating factor Razlan not just going on trial was, but getting a life sentence. So, you know, it's testament to those Syrian individuals, those Syrian human rights organizations who have put the hard work in and to the victims who shared their stories, which has not been easy. And it shows that justice can be done, even on a limited scale. It's early stages yet, but momentum is certainly building uh, on the justice track. And I think Koblenz and the Razlan verdict in particular was testament to that. There were two main reasons why universal jurisdiction could be applied in the case of Anwar Razlan. Firstly, Germany decided that it would implement the legal principle. And secondly, Razlan was in Germany. He defected from the Assad regime in 2012 and was granted asylum in Germany in 2014. He was one of almost 800,000 Syrians who fled to Germany. And with such a large pool of refugees, it was possible to find victims of his crimes who were also brave enough to testify against the former colonel. You're dealing with a, a context, a country context, where the scale of atrocities are extreme. They are extreme. The numbers are huge. And the amount of evidence that has been collected, including thanks to Syrian and international partners who have managed to smuggle documentation out of Syria, it's huge. But also because of the refugee outflow, you've got a lot of people who have information. 
Now, here, again, it comes to a matter of resources, capacity and will. So, yes, there are good efforts by states and NGOs to reach out to refugees to get information. But the whole process needs more investment to ensure that investigators have the capacity to not just gather the information, but store it in a secure way so it's admissible down the line, to be able to analyse it effectively and then to be able to use it to build cases and, and eventually hold perpetrators to account. On top of that, there is also a responsibility, a duty of care to those people who are being interviewed, and in some cases, the interviewers themselves, to ensure that they're kept safe and that their well-being is taken care of, because there's a massive psychological toll, which is often unspoken. Uh, especially from the Syrian human rights community that, that often don't talk about the psychological toll this has on them. Um, that's another issue and it also precludes people from coming forward because they don't want to be re-traumatised. You know, they have information, they would love to see people sent to prison, but it's just too difficult. Universal jurisdiction is a powerful tool, as proven by the recent conviction. Razlan was found guilty and he will spend the rest of his life in prison. But he was just one part of a machine that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. To prosecute every single member of the Assad regime who has committed war crimes and crimes against humanity would be an impossible task. Not least for the fact that those at the top of the regime, Assad and his inner circles, are very unlikely to spend their summer holidays in Germany. So... If not universal jurisdiction, then what? Do they all walk free? Not necessarily. Around the world, diligent efforts are being made to ensure that those who are guilty cannot escape justice. At Guernica, we have actively been working on Syrian-related matters since, since early on in the peaceful uprising. This is Toby Cadman, a barrister at Guernica 37 and specialist in international criminal law and international human rights. Um, so in, in the first part of 2011, we, we first got involved. Um, at that stage, it was more looking at how to, how to document, how to get evidence out of Syria, how to build cases along with Syrian actors, Syrian lawyers, uh, Syrian NGOs, and then how we could identify jurisdiction. Prior to the Raslan trial, Guernica 37 brought one of the first universal jurisdiction cases for Syrian war crimes in 2017 in Spain. In this instance, a Spanish Syrian national identified the body of her murdered brother among the vast cache of photos that were smuggled out of Syria. These photos, known as the Caesar files, show in graphic detail the brutality and torture that men and women, young and old, was subjected to inside Syrian prisons. In total, the photos documented the bodies of 11,000 different people murdered by the regime. And they only account for the bodies photographed at one military hospital in Damascus. The true toll, taking into account the other major cities in Syria, remains unknown. And so we filed a case in Spain, uh, at the Central Criminal Court in, in, in Madrid, which was initially uh, opened by the investigative magistrate, but subsequently the, the case did not proceed on the basis that the Spanish prosecutor general opposed jurisdiction in this case. But it was purely on a, on a 
technical, legal technical matter as to whether the sibling could bring a claim against a victim on behalf of a victim when that victim was not a Spanish national. So that was one of the first challenges that, that we identified was being able to establish jurisdiction in a national court in the absence of international jurisdiction. Of course, the German authorities have taken a much braver approach um, than, the, than most of Europe. Despite this earlier setback, the team at Guernica 37 still stand by the use of universal jurisdiction, but have also looked for alternatives. We at Guernica have been assisting the, the government of the, of the Netherlands in a, in a slightly different initiative, which is to hold Syria accountable for breaches of the Torture Convention, the UN Convention Against Torture, which that is a matter that ultimately is likely to end up in the International Court of Justice. Now, that's not a criminal process. That's a state responsibility. And when we first started looking at it, there is a requirement under the convention and the practice of the International Court of Justice is that you only need to have one instance of torture and one victim of torture in order for responsibility to be engaged. Sadly, in the case of Syria, there are tens of thousands of people who could fill the role as a victim of torture. But that doesn't inherently make the task easier. And when you think about Syria, it is not a question of identifying who that victim is and what that act of torture should be, but how do you narrow down the mass of evidence that you have to a manageable level that you can effectively take before the court? And what does that mean for those victims of torture who are not represented in that process? You know, it, it is very, very difficult to, to be able to, to have to say to, to victims and their families, as much as you have suffered, you are not going to be part of this process. Um, and that is very difficult for, for victims to take. I've experienced that in Bosnia, I've experienced that in Rwanda, and it is much more of a problem as far as Syria is concerned. While a trial at the International Court of Justice may not be criminal in nature, it can send a powerful message to the Assad regime. Your crimes have not been forgotten. Justice awaits. Furthermore, it sends a message to the victims of torture. Your suffering has not been forgotten. Justice can be served. There's another avenue being pursued by the team at Guernica 37. Remember the ICC, where Syria couldn't be held accountable? Well, what if they could? Within the Rome Statute exists a provision that allows for the chief prosecutor to open their own preliminary examination or investigation without a resolution being handed down by the UN Security Council. However, the matter of the court's jurisdiction does still apply. We have been, or we had been looking at that time uh, in 2018, we had been looking at ways in which we could uh, expand the, the notion of jurisdiction for the ICC. As a workaround, Toby and his team looked at other conflicts and humanitarian tragedies, which could be used as a legal precedent. The opportunity presented itself in relation to the situation in Myanmar. So we were invited to submit what's called an amicus brief, so a legal submission, to the trial panel at the International Criminal Court in relation to the forced deportation of 500,000 Rohingya from uh, Myanmar into Bangladesh. Now, Bangladesh is a state party. Myanmar is not. The argument being that if a crime occurs on, in two jurisdictions, one of which is a state party, you may be able to establish jurisdiction. 
In 2019, the ICC did authorise a prosecutor to proceed with an investigation in relation to Myanmar and Bangladesh. In our submission, we had opened up the possibility that if the court considers Myanmar or the situation in Myanmar to have jurisdiction, then it must follow that Syria and Jordan would also follow. And in many ways, we wanted to use Myanmar as a test case because it was likely to be less controversial than getting the court to accept Syria. So immediately after the the trial panel ruled that the, it did have jurisdiction for Myanmar, we actively pursued the, the situation as far as Syria is concerned, Jordan being a state party. At the point that we were uh, making the arguments, more than one and a half million um, Syrians had been forced into Jordan. And we said that this, the situation was analogous to, to the Myanmar situation. But what has to be understood is that it is for the crime of forced deportation. Following this path would not deal with the tens of thousands tortured and murdered in Assad's prisons. It wouldn't account for the thousands killed in the indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas. Nor indeed would it see the regime prosecuted for the use of chemical weapons. But there could still be some justice. Better a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without. One issue that the team at Guernica had to deal with was an issue raised by one of the prosecutors who questioned whether there was a possibility that those Syrians who were forcibly displaced to Jordan had the option to return. But for Toby, that issue is a complete non-starter. You know, we, we argued issues such as um, forcible conscription for men between the ages of 18 and um, whatever age it is, uh, 55, 60. They could be forcibly conscripted into the army and if they didn't commit crimes, as the, the rest of the Syrian army was committing, they could be thrown in jail, tortured and killed. If they didn't accept forcible conscription, they could be arrested, tortured and killed. We've also seen individuals who have returned to Syria, who have been active outside of Syria, and they have disappeared into the prison system. One perfect example is the case of Mazen al-Humada, who was a, a, a victim who... who gave testimony as to what, what he had suffered and then he was effectively forcibly returned to Syria and then disappeared into the prison system where we still don't know where he is. It will be the job of the prosecutor at the ICC to make a judgment as to whether an investigation can be opened. It was hoped that Fatou Bensouda would make her judgment before she left office in June 2021, but she did not deliver. All eyes now rest on her successor, British lawyer, Karim Khan. The routes down the International Court of Justice or shifting the jurisdiction of the ICC are both valid and viable options. But Guernica is working on a third, which doesn't directly involve the Assad regime, but rather their partners in crime. We have been actively working on the assistance that Russia has given in targeting hospitals in particular from 2016 onwards. And of course, Whilst Russia is not a member of the International Criminal Court, it is a member of the European Court of Human Rights. And so we are actively pursuing that matter. We have requested the Russian authorities to conduct their own investigations. They have declined or, or not responded, um, as one would expect. To simply say that securing justice for the victims of the Syrian conflicts will not be easy is a gross understatement. Despite the yearning of the Syrian people... Assad remains in power, and justice will be a monumental undertaking 
and it will likely be an incredibly slow process. As late as last year, courts were still hearing cases against Nazi war criminals. In Bosnia, prominent figures are still being tried. There are no guarantees that everyone will see the inside of a courtroom. Christian from Amnesty International again. But it is important to break down what successful justice looks like in its smaller parts and then work to achieve those smaller parts to to build up that foundation and to build that sense of momentum. Breaking it down into really smaller parts and then when you get a a victory like uh, Anwar Aslan being sent to prison for life, we can look back and say our theory of change, if you like, for getting justice in this one case, it worked. With more investment and more support, we can replicate this and multiply it and move on to the next one. Syrian human rights defenders we work with, and we know, I I, I can't speak for all of them, but I don't think they'll ever be 100% satisfied. But, uh, you know, if the least we can do is or expect is that they say this is the best we could have got, it's a sense of justice. I think, you know, that's good. And we, we, we build on that. And who knows, hopefully one day the international system may change and we may get an international trial, either at the ICC or somewhere else. And that will really turbocharge the uh, justice initiatives, but we're not there yet. And Syrian journalist Naya from the podcast Branch 251 with the message she hopes the Raslan sentencing sends. I think just watch out for what you're doing because there's always a judgment day, let me say, or just like an end game for what is where you're doing. Hopefully sooner than later. Just be, just like watch out because you will be held responsible somehow. It's it's difficult sometimes to see how Assad will be brought to justice, but we always think about this about this about this hope in 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 our horizon that that would ha- ha- happen some sometime. Justice needs memory. It needs the memories of victims to tell their stories and accuse and condemn those who are guilty of monstrous atrocities. The act of investigation and the pursuit of justice must also be remembered. It must be remembered so that the next person, prison guard, soldier, militia leader or president who considers repeating the same barbarity knows that the world will not turn away and will not allow a debt to go unpaid. For love alone explains love and the lover. The sun alone is proof of all things solar. If you need proof, do not avert your face. Although the shadow gives a hint of it, the sun bestows the light of life at all times. The mystic poet Rumi, who lived hundreds of years ago, continues to touch modern hearts with his beautiful, aching words about love, relationships, the divine and the universe. In honour of this sentimental time of year, Valentine's Day, I've delved into the life and works of this 13th century Sufi philosopher, an icon in both the East and the West. His full name is Mulana Khodavandar Jalaluddin Mohammed ibn Mohammed ibn Hussein al-Balkhi al-Rumi. This is Alan Williams, a professor and Rumi expert who has spent years translating his work. His name actually is problematic. Um, in this sense, that it's a toponym, it's a place name, it's where he came from, or rather not where he came from, which is part of the problem. Rumi actually means the Byzantine or the the Westerner, 
Rum is the name for the Sultanate of, of Rum, a Seljuk Sultanate in what is now known as Turkey. Rumi was born in eastern Afghanistan in 1207, near the borders with Tajikistan. But he spent a lot of his life, until his death in 1273, in Turkey. So, a number of countries tried to claim him as their national poet. This includes Afghanistan, Iran, because he wrote in Persian, Turkey, Tajikistan, and now also, to some extent, the West. Because he's really known to us through this enormous body of poetry that he wrote. He also wrote some short prose works, but it's these two large canons. One is the Divan, that is a collection of poems, of qazals, or lyric poems, and qasaid, or qasidas, and rubayat, or short verses. So his other major work is is the work he wrote before he died, the sort of decade before he died, in his 50s and 60s, which is called the Masnavi, and Masnavi or Mathnawi in Arabic, Mathnawi just means couplets. It's as simple as that. It's like verses. These are double couplets. And that's what makes it such a long poem because he wrote 25,500 of these couplets. And that's one poem in six volumes. Alan describes Rumi as a poet of love. But the question is, what kind of love? He writes about love because it is the most universal thing. In fact, for him... Love is the divine glue that holds the universe together. It is love that is creative. Now that love, I have to say, right at the outset, to him is synonymous with God. It's, uh, God is synonymous with two things, truth, or haq in Arabic, and love, ishq in Arabic. Now this word ishq in Arabic does not just mean It does not mean agape or the Greek platonic love, the Greek love of the New Testament. It doesn't mean eros or the the erotic love. It means the passionate love of the lover for the beloved. For Rumi, God is the one who is beloved of humanity, and humanity is the lover. And so the, the key to understanding love in Rumi is that it is what unites two people or two things. The whole universe is one in the love of the creator God. So it is. it begins as this enormous, this universal concept of, or reality of, of a, a force that is global and universal, but which is intensely personal because it is our very, the very core of our being. What Rumi celebrates when he talks about love, said Alan, is the unity of existence. This is what permeates throughout his work. During our interview, Alan read a passage from the Masnavi, a story about a king who falls in love with a handmaiden, who then falls ill. The sign of being in love is an aching heart. There is no suffering like the suffering heart. The lover's sufferings like no other suffering Love is the astrolabe of God's own mysteries. No matter whether love is of this world or of the next, it steals us to this world. Whatever words I say to explain this love, when I arrive at love, I am ashamed. Alan also described how different relationships in Rumi's life influenced his work. Rumi's father was an important influence. He taught him everything he knew about Sufism. Sufism is a mystical Islamic belief and practice in which Muslims seek to find the truth of divine love and knowledge through direct personal experience of God. However, said Alan, 
Rumi's most significant and famous companion is Shamsuddin of Tabriz. A lot has been speculated about the nature of their relationship. And Shamsuddin becomes a symbol of his spiritual consort. In other words, his double. But it is dubbed a homosexual relationship by some. And I can see why gay men might want to celebrate a relationship between two men that was closer than anything else in his life. Rumi himself does not seem to have condoned or uh, practiced homosexual love. Although that, that is, I mean, it's controversial because it, there is no evidence. Alan challenged 21st century interpretations of Rumi's sexuality. Although he's become renowned as, you know, being part of the first gay couple, so to speak. I mean, although that can be celebrated, it's a distortion of the point, really, that although he is famous for having spent months uh, with Shamsuddin uh, in seclusion, that this was, a, this was a spiritual relationship, and perhaps the closest analogy is that of the Socratic relationship or the Platonic relationship of... Delving into the world of Rumi, I also spoke to Iranian-American Melody Moisey. The activist and writer inherited her passion for Rumi through her father. In adulthood, this passion became a lifeline. Uh, even though I grew up mostly in Dayton, Ohio, my dad was always reciting this poetry to me. I would call him a Rumi addict specifically. And like most children of addicts, I grew up sort of resenting the object of my father's addiction. I, I wasn't a huge fan. I didn't, I didn't want to hear the poems. I was a brat. So it took till I was like 30 years old till I finally realized there was some value to this. And also realized that given my Persian skills, unless I actually took advantage of learning this from my father when he was alive and with it, then there's no other way for me to, to learn it. Really. Melody said her father, a physician, used to give her and his patients Rumi prescriptions, poems to help them navigate the spiritual and emotional aspects of their health and well-being. I asked her what life lessons she took from Rumi's words. That you almost cannot really know love purely without a reflection, without somebody else, um, whether that person is a guide. And it doesn't always have to be a positive reflection either. So there's this notion of everyone is there to educate you in some way. Everyone you come across is a teacher not just in terms of what they know, but how they can reflect you back at yourself. And it's frequently the people that most annoy us, that are most uh, troubling for us, that have the biggest lessons for us. Because if they're annoying us, there's something within ourselves that is like that. Melody, who speaks openly about her bipolar disorder, said it was mystic experiences in her own life that brought her closer to Rumi. Experiences where she lost all sense of ego and felt a oneness with the earth. Rumi embraces insanity, she said. And ultimately for him, everybody is crazy. So all of us are crazy. The question is, are we going to go towards the crazy that's rooted in love, or are we going to go towards the crazy that's rooted in fear? Melody, like Alan, explained how for Rumi, love of God and human love were one and the same. God is beloved, and humanity is the lover. Since hearing my first love story... I pursued the beloved with every part of me. But could lover and beloved ever be separate, subject to division? No, they are one and the same. I just had double vision. 
The passage you just heard is a translation from Melody's book, The Rumi Prescription, How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life. I asked her about what she thought of other translations, from those who don't speak Persian. For example, American poet Coleman Barks. Your actions in my head. My head here in my hands. With something circling inside. I have no name for what circles so perfectly. Barks, a non-Persian speaker, has produced Rumi translations that are probably the most well-known across America. Barks's translations have been described as both cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. Um, initially, I took this as like extreme cultural appropriation. I was wildly offended. I was, but I can't deny that his poems are so beautiful and they capture the spirit of Rumi's poetry in English better than anyone else. And I think Rumi has an explanation for this because he says, Hamdeli az hamzabani behtarast, which is, it's better to be hamdeli, of the same heart, hamdel. It's better to be of the same heart than of the same tongue. Melody said she wants everyone to enjoy Persian literature and praises any work that captures the spirit of Rumi, a spirit that values community, brotherhood, understanding and oneness. Final words to Alan. That when we listen to music, we hear many different instruments playing at the same time, but the sound is one. That music blends into one experience. And in contemplating that polyphony, that's a word I often use when explaining uh, Rumi's writing, that polyphony of sounds and of images, we experience in ourselves that unification uh, of the music, just like the words of Rumi, the, all of the hundreds of thousands of verses, or tens of thousands of verses and images that gradually builds up in the reader an appreciation of the essence, the spirit of what he is saying, the idea of unification. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced and written by me, Hugo Goodridge, and Rosie McCabe, with additional help from Safa Amma. Our theme music was by Omar El-Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.